broadcasting from Madison, Wisconsin, the home of Bucky Badger and the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy. This is the Apothecary Club, a monthly podcast about emerging trends and their impact on pharmaceutical science and drug development. This podcast is a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Sciences. And now, here's your host, author and educator, Dr. Eric Burns. You are listening to the Apothecary Club podcast. Today we're talking with Nick Tatnetti. He's the Herbert Irving Professor of Biomedical Informatics and the Director of Clinical Informatics at the Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center at Columbia University. Nick, thanks for joining us again today. Thanks again for having me. It's fun to be here. Yeah, well, we loved having you the first go-around, and we, we kept talking, and we just figured let's make this into a, an extension of the first conversation regarding generalized big data. Today, I really wanted to, to dive deeper into the conversation around impacting global health through big data. And some of the questions that keep coming up regarding the use of big data is that it's an open source type model in general. And so that led me to the question of validity and reliability are seemingly, you know, somewhat unspoken concerns for, for much of the area around big data in that, in that research. Is there a type of data set able to be trusted from a statistical standpoint? Well, that is a fantastic question because we are really struggling with this problem of reliability and, and replicability of our data analysis, especially from big data sets. The main problem you have when analyzing a very large data set is that it's very easy to get a significant p-value. And you might bring up the question, the astute listener will say, well, you have multiplicity correction, you have to do that in order to control your family-wise error rate. And I would say, of course, very good job, gold star. But even so, you can get very significant p-values, so-called significant p-values, because you're analyzing millions of records. And they might be very inflated from what is really happening. And that is because the statistical model that you're using may not perfectly align with the data that you are analyzing. And when that happens, you can get these kind of misestimates of what the significance is. Now, I had a great question come up in a recent talk, and I think that as data scientists, we need to be very careful about this. And that question really brought this to the forefront of my mind. And somebody stood up and they said, you just showed us results where you analyzed a million patient records. That must be right. It, how could a million patient records be wrong? And my response to that, after being stunned and silenced a little bit, because that is not the, the view that I want the listeners to come away with, it's these can definitely be wrong. Uh, but what we have been training the layperson to do, and what we all as scientists need to do, is to educate them beyond that. What we have been training the layperson to do is to trust N because N was always the limiting factor, in, especially in clinical studies. If a study only has a couple of people in it, perhaps it's not valid, or if it only represents one small population, perhaps it wouldn't generalize across the country or across the world. And so people would inherently know not to necessarily trust the result because of a very low N. Right. And people have this intuition, this very good but natural intuition 
But now we have a problem because we taught everyone so hard to trust big N that now they don't know not to trust big N because now I have a million patients and people implicitly trust that. And they need to know that variance and bias is also a significant factor that can cast doubt on the results of an analysis. And so I think it's up to us as scientists to really start to educate the public on new statistical uh, parameters like variance and bias so that they have an intuition. And exactly how we're going to do that, I'm not sure. Uh, but, when, but we can start by whenever we present our research by acknowledging those two very important components. And I think probably when you're doing analysis like we do in our lab, where you're analyzing millions of patient records, looking at drug effects and disease incidents, bias is the number one concern. Because what you're looking at may not represent a, may not be representative of the average patient that you see. And you need to acknowledge that. I know in the, the general educational science side, in the adult education world, we really look at response rate as a, as a major concern. Mm -hmm. And the concern I always had with that was if, okay, you had 10 people as your sample and or your, your, your population and eight responded, well, congratulations, you have an 80% response rate. That doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. um, and doesn't mean anything from, from what you're saying necessarily. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you, you talk about multiplicity and variance and, variance and bias. Can you talk a little bit about how, if at all, statistical power comes into play with, with your research? I, absolutely. I mean, it's tightly related to these other concepts. Uh, the issue with power is that you, in order to estimate the power, you need to have an estimate of the effect size. Often we do not have that estimate. Uh, so then we say, okay, well, I'll postulate that the effect size is somewhere between some very wide range, and then I can compute power. Again, though, the typical thing to do would be to say, here's, I have a statistical model. I have an estimated effect size. And now I'm going to compute power based on the number of the N that I have in my data set. When you have humongous data sets like this, then you're going to find that you have a lot of power. What that's not accounting for are the bias. You would have to explicitly include that in your model, which you could do, but is not typically done when you do these power analyses. So when working within big data sets, before we jump into how this is impacting other areas, can you talk a little bit maybe about uh, best practices of, of what you would really suggest researchers to take into consideration when starting this process? Yeah, I think it's really a three-step approach. It's rigorous evaluation, it's corroboration from independent sources of evidence, and it's validation. So with rigorous evaluation, you want to be careful when you design approach. Often you're learning a model from the data. You want to use methods like cross-validation, or out-of-bag analysis to evaluate your data to come up with good estimates of how your model would perform if it was not trained on your data set, for example. And the second part is corroboration. Ideally, what you'd like to do is have two independent sources of evidence. So for example, in our research, we analyzed the FDA's adverse event reporting system to look for drug-drug interactions. We then attempt to corroborate our findings in the electronic health records. You could argue they're not completely independent, but they do not represent exactly the same populations. 
And so if we find something in both of those data sets that is corroborating evidence that what we're finding is actually real. And then the third and probably the most important thing and can't be ignored is validation. And ideally, this is experimental laboratory validation. You need to identify a model to use, uh, a prospective model to use. Uh, so perhaps it could be in our analysis, we've done mouse models where we actually give drugs to these mice and we see what happens. We've done cell-based models. We've done in vitro models to try and validate our findings that we get from these large observational analysis of big data. It's not always easy, uh, but it is incredibly important and can really change the conversation from what could I have done wrong to what is the biological mechanism of my finding. Uh, and once you're there, then you actually open up a whole new cadre of questions that are kind of more scientifically interesting about what is driving this? What biology or what about the world is driving my observations? Instead of thinking about what could I have done wrong in my statistical analysis? Best practices are always appreciated. I, I know everybody always asks that question from a variety of different fields, and having that little crib sheet is, I'm sure, going to be helpful. Switching gears a little bit to the impact on global health, can you talk a little bit about how big data is playing a role within international healthcare, specifically within drug development? I think this is actually the area where big data could have the most impact in terms of healthcare and medicine. We now have the ability to monitor hundreds of millions of patients in terms of the diseases they get, their reactions to drugs, uh, their, their risk factors, their environmental exposures by collecting different data sets together and analyzing them. Uh, so for example, in the Odyssey collaborations, the Observational Health Data Science and Informatics collaboration, we have over 500 million patients' records all in the same data format so that when I run analysis here at Columbia, I can ship it off to my colleagues uh, at Vanderbilt or at Stanford and U University of California, and they can run the exact same analysis there. Uh, and what this enables us to do is really change the scope of our analyses from one specific population to a global population. And when you do that, you really identify these large markers of global health. And now we don't know what to do with those yet. We're really just learning what they mean. Uh, but in the future, that might really help us monitor health and intervene when appropriate. So when you mention your other colleagues that are running the same tests, I, I noticed that, and this could be just my own viewpoint of this, but it, it seems like there's a lot of uh, Western universities that are working on this. And I bring that up because many are suggesting that the parts of the world that would most benefit from the application of big data sets are the same parts of the world without the technological infrastructure to really play a role in that. Can you share a little bit about your view of that and, and how this may or may not be true? I think that's a great point and one that we need to be very sensitive to. I think that it is partially true. I, these, a lot of uh, countries um, that are represented in the analysis that I've been talking about are these West, traditionally Western countries that have large infrastructure, technological infrastructure to support the collection and analysis of this type of data. Uh, but a lot of developing countries are actually adopting or skipping over many years of, of technologies 
and uh, coming straight to the modern era where you have cell phones in everyone's hands capturing data. You have very lightweight, adaptable electronic health records, for example, being installed all across Africa. Uh, you're, we have the ability to now efficiently integrate these technologies, and these countries are sometimes even at the forefront of this, where they are taking advantage because they are in some ways more nimble and able to modernize more quickly, they are taking advantage of the most modern technologies. But they are not represented often in these analyses, and that's up to us as researchers to make sure that we are incorporating um, these countries and incorporating the diversity that they offer into our analysis. Without them, it's very incomplete. We will have a biased and incomplete picture of global health, and we will, it might lead us to erroneous conclusions. So it really is up to us to figure out how to include and incorporate um, the entire world in this analysis. So off of that point, what can, what can research scientists do to, to better inform this process globally? I know I'm at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy, and we try to have this inclusive viewpoint of, of global research, but it's, it's difficult when we're entrenched in Western perceptions. What, from your standpoint, what can the research scientists and the organizational structures do to, to push this forward? I think we have to recognize that typical approaches may not work. You might think, oh, well, we'll put an RFA up and we'll put some money up so that we can collaborate. Or you know, if they wanted to participate, they could. We're not opposed to it. But you have to acknowledge that there are some inherent biases in our societies that may make it hard or may put up barriers through allowing countries to access the information or to integrate themselves. And so we have to have special programs and we have to, and I think it's going to take research to figure out what these programs are. I don't have the answers for that, but I think in, we can't just uh, expect it to happen because we think we're, we're doing open science and we're freely collaborating. That's not enough. We have to study and research how best to incorporate these populations and then to actually execute on those to make sure that they are included in these efforts. It sounds like there's a real opportunity for real collaboration between laboratory science and, and adult learning and educational science in understanding how people are really going to be interacting with these tools or, or interfaces that are maybe more non-traditional in nature. I think that's absolutely true. And it also goes back to your, our previous conversation about requiring scientists to really have a, a creative interdisciplinary view on, on how to get this stuff done rather than just the traditional laboratory research mindset. Mm -hmm. Overall, when we think about these open data sets within big data, how are these impacting uh, general global health outcomes as well as uh, your specific interests and projects right now? I mean, I think it makes it possible. So research groups like mine would really not exist if open data sets did not exist. A lot of what we do is trying to figure out how to integrate that sequencing data set that was generated for a thousand patients in Nebraska with the clinical data that we have from uh, Tennessee. And how do we integrate that in a way that gives us new information or reveals new medicine or biomedical knowledge? If these data sets aren't being shared and made available, 
then that limits our capacity to make new discoveries. So we really rely on so-called other people's data or these open data sets to run our analysis. And I think that's going to be continuing. That's, it's, the trend is only going to continue. So as new data scientists enter the field, uh, they're going to be reliant on these data sets. Some scientists will naturally dive into data sets, want to generate new ones, and, uh, and they will make them publicly available. I think science as a community has really recognized the value of an open data set and largely has, a, has adopted an open science approach where data are kind of continuously made available, made right. free, scripts and analysis and code is made available and made free. Uh, and I think we're rapidly moving toward an era of real openness. Well, as, as somebody who's, you know, obviously so ingrained and, and leading this effort, I would assume that some of the hesitancy coming from other researchers may be, you know, the overall concerns of applying these types of data sets. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what those concerns might be and how you and your lab are are actively guarding against what those downfalls might be? Yeah, I think the most common, uh, most common concern you'll hear when you say or you suggest to somebody that they should release their data set publicly is that, well, other people won't know the problems with my data set. And I'm worried that if I release my data set, they're going to analyze it, they're going to come to wrong conclusions because they don't understand it as intimately as I do as the person who collected that data. So, and I think this is a valid concern, but I don't think it's a reason not to release data. It can only be better by having more eyes, more minds on the data set, figuring out all the biases, because maybe there are additional biases that you yourself are not aware of as the collector of those data. And having a million eyes and minds working on a data set is always going to be superior to having a one group's mind on that data. So as a closing question, this is, you know, this is really a humanistic viewpoint of, of how this could work, but I, I go to that because the end result is impact on human health. What is the potential for us when using these data sets? What is the real, the real uh, shining model that we can really be driving towards? What, what's within our grasp when we consider these? Well, it makes me think of and the motivating tenant of informatics as a field. So the central dogma, if you will, of informatics is that a computer itself is not superior to a human at running analysis, but that a computer plus a human is superior than just a human. And I think we have a very similar thing happening in data science, where I would never argue that data are superior to humans at conducting research. It's not going to happen. But data plus a creative mind can be far superior than just a creative mind in isolation. So the real opportunity is that we will be able to recognize and explore models, hypotheses in, and uh, about the world around us that we had never been able to before. That's what big data sets allow us to do. And that's the opportunity we have. I think we're going to see a rapid advance of discovery because of large data sets, and it really comes from the opportunity to explore new areas of research that simply would not have occurred to us before we had these data.
Nick, thank you so much for leading this effort. It it has really been an eye-opening experience speaking with you and, and truly a pleasure. If anybody wanted to connect with you and, and have a discussion, how best is it to connect? My contact information is available on my lab's website at tatnetilab.org. Nick, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We hope to have you back again soon. Thank you, Eric. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to the Apothecary Club with Dr. Eric Burns. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theapothecaryclub.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section on our website for previous podcasts and follow us on social media. This has been a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists. Join us next time for another edition of the Apothecary Club Podcast.